Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. Actually, go to 11. We'll start there. Uh, after my opening illustration last week of growing up as a hockey-loving uh, kid in Ontario, Canada, I feel like it's um, very important after some of the looks that I received and some of the texts that I got uh, to, make it, to make it clear that I'm actually an American. I was born in the suburbs of Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. That's in the United States. Um, that's right. Uh, I am registered to vote. I do vote. Um, I do not know French. Uh, let's see, I, I do not use the metric system, although I think we all should. Um, and no, I currently do not support nationalized medicine. I want to pay for it myself, doggone it. All right, so I am simply a loud, zealous, milk out of a gallon jug drinking American and proud to be one. So just to make sure everything is clear, even though you may have thought that Jordan and I were long lost brothers from Canada, only brothers in Christ, not anything more. Um, so to get all that out of the way, let's go to Joshua chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 16 and go through the end of chapter 12, which is a sizable chunk. But if I can explain right up front, chapter 12 is an excursus or a, a detailed discussion on a particular point that seems to be added to the main narrative, but it doesn't flow naturally. We will not read chapter 12 right now, but we will get to it. Let me read for us the end of chapter 11, and you'll understand as we get there. We'll read verses 16 through 23, and then we'll pray. Verse 16, so Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arba and the hill country of Israel and its lowland and from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities." There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to all their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Let's pray together. Lord, your promises are sure. Not one of your promises has ever failed. You have always supplied for your people. You've always been gracious, and more than that, you've always been generous. Lord, you opened the waters for Israel at the Red Sea, and then also as we've been watching in, in Joshua at the Jordan, you supplied your people with manna and quail when they had nothing to eat. You rescued us in our position when you took our place and received our divine judgment at the cross. 
Lord, you have brought us together. Lord, you've brought us together today to feed us, to help us remember, to hear our praises to you, the great king, and, and to teach us your way. Lord, we are here because we need you. Would you please feed us? Would you increase our faith? Each one here has different problems, but Lord, everyone has the same need. It's you, God. Would you give us yourself today? Would you cause your Holy Spirit to draw unbelieving hearts to yourself? Would you work sanctification in our lives? Would you give us faith to trust you over all other things that vie for our attention? We need you, God. Please answer us. May we know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we, uh, we listened as our narrator took us through the reports of South Canaan. We saw in each territory and the cities that were there, and Joshua rolled through with Israel and took them in battle, putting each one to destruction. Then we watched as Jabin, the king of Hatsor, gathered a mighty coalition in the north side. And truthfully, it was a near impossible situation. If you remember this, it's this big test for Israel. It's like the grand finale of the conquering of the land. The stage was set. The enemy coalition was massive. A horde of soldiers. To put it in the language, it was said that it was like the, the, uh, the sands of the seashore. Not only that, they were mighty, they were united, they had horses and chariots. The war machines of their day. But the writer showed us that these human inventions and these seeming huge advantages were nothing compared to Yahweh, the divine warrior, when he was on their side. And by the end of the passage, we watched as Hatsor burned and everything that breathed was put to the edge of the sword. Yahweh, therefore, had shown himself to be faithful and strong and trustworthy in the midst of each and every battle. He showed us the superiority, his own superiority over all of human invention and advantage. And therefore, he showed us that it's far better to have God on your side than to have all the advantages that the world could possibly give through alliance and strength and resources. In the passage that we go into today, though, you'll notice that we've long left the detailed accounts of Jericho and I. And we've even gone past these high-level accounts or these reports of the southern cities that were conquered. And we even are now past this final, this final battle. And where we're at here is almost slowed down a bit. The Canaanite powers have been crushed and Hatzor has been destroyed. In our passage today, the author turns to victory summaries. Seemingly when we come across this passage, it's just okay. We don't really know what to do with it. It's a little bit boring. We're not sure what to do here. But we get these victory summaries, and we get these theological reflections, and a final report even about the biggest, scariest warriors in the land, the Anakim. And after that, we get chapter 12, a listing of each conquered city. First, the ones you'll see by Moses conquered on the east side of the Jordan, and then the ones by Joshua on the west side of the Jordan. So it's on us as Bible students to ask, what is going on here? Is this just history, or what are we supposed to learn? What's happening in our passage here today? To understand this, we're going to have to go back and turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 2. We're going to have to look through some things and skip around a little bit so that we can properly understand what Joshua is doing in this part here. 
I am going to read for us Joshua 2 and 3. But again, like I said, I'm going to skip a little bit. Just follow with me. Let me explain what you're going about to see here. In Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we have the account of Moses beginning the conquest on the east side of the Jordan. He is beginning to claim and fulfill the promises that Yahweh gave to his people back on Mount Sinai in Exodus 23. Again, I'm not going to make you go back there, but if you go back to Exodus 23, you realize that God promised Canaan to his people that he would do this, that he would give it to them, that he would go before them, and he would help them to possess this land, that they would certainly possess the land, and that it would not happen overnight. You may remember this statement, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So that's back in Exodus. That's when he first gave this promise about specifically what's going to happen in Canaan. In Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we watch Moses, though, begin this conquest of Canaan. He's moving forward with God's plan to remove the Canaanites from the land so that Israel might have their new home. He's doing this by way of warfare. And it looks a lot like what we've been seeing already here in Joshua. Now, while we read this, I want you to pay attention to a few things because it's going to sound very familiar. You're going to hear it. You're going to pick it up right away. The Lord is going to do a couple things here. He's going to give them the land. Notice that language. You're also going to see Israel take possession of this land. You're also going to see the language of devoting to destruction of these cities. And then also we're going to see the language of God hardening hearts. Further, you need to pay attention to the defeat of the Rephaim. Those are the giant warriors, tall and as fierce as the Anakim, that made Israel rebel at Kadesh Barnea back in Numbers 13, when they had the chance to go into the land and they rebelled and walked away. So let's do this. I want you to look at Deuteronomy 2. I'm going to start in verse 24 and stay with me. Here we go. This is God talking now. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Skip down to 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right or to the left. Go down to verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And the Lord said to, to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz, and the Lord our God gave him over to us. And we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves the plunder of the cities that were captured. I go to chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up to Bashan the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Adrei. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left." 
and we took all his cities at that time. Look at verse 10. All the cities of the tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Adre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. We're talking about a bed frame that's at least 13 and a half feet long. So what we're seeing here is the conquest beginning. We often think, you and I think of Joshua as kind of the guy that's over the conquest, and rightly so. But here we are starting to see that it's not just Joshua who's the king of the conquest. Moses is actually starting this on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And eventually, he gives the land over to the tribes of, if you remember, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. God designates then Joshua to lead Israel into Canaan after Moses is forbidden to enter the promised land. And so the rest of this Canaanite conquest will be carried out by Joshua. And now you and I have been walking through the book of Joshua, watching from chapter 1 all the way up to this point, and watching God go before his people, just like he said he would, giving them victory and having them trust and obey him along the way. We've walked step by step through the early battles. Uh, We've seen great victory, and we've also seen unexpected loss as well. We've watched as Israel had to learn what it means to be covenantly faithful as an entire unit. Achan's sin polluted the whole nation. And we watched as they learned what it meant to live holy lives. Their need for complete, utter commitment to the Lord Yahweh alone. And in the last few weeks, we've watched as they have rolled through the southern campaign and have come upon this final battle against the kings of the north. And each time we've walked along with Joshua, we learned the lessons that he did. Each battle almost taught us something different about who God was and how he interacted with his people and how he interacted with the nations as well. They actually took the whole land that Canaan had promised them, I mean, that God had promised them in all these different things were going on. The job that Moses had started then back in Deuteronomy 2 was being completed by Joshua and company. This is where we're at when we get to 1116. This is where we're at. And what we're going to see from 16 to 23 is the other bookend of this conquest. Look at it again here. You'll see. You have this important use of the word so. If you look at your text, you'll see in the first verse in 16, you're going to see it set off right away by so. Then if you look at the last part of 19, you're going to see so again. And then verse 23, you're going to see it used once more time. Each time this little English word so is showing us that this is some sort of statement that we need to pay attention to because it's trying to get across a certain point of summary. These statements are wrapping up all the battles that have gone before that Joshua has gone through conquest. But the conquest, like we said, started all the way back in Deuteronomy with Moses. In verse 16, you've got the narrator mentioning all the regions that are conquered throughout the land west of the Jordan River. I'm going to click through a few of these so you kind of see, but I'm going to read it. Verse 16, so Joshua took all that land, the hill country and the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. Now what we have here, if you can, now this is not a great map, but it helps you see. The top there, you see the Sea of Chinnereth or it's, we call the Sea of Galilee uh, in the New Testament. And you'll see the bottom one, you know, the great Mediterranean is there, of course, on the left. But you'll see the bottom ones, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And what runs between there is the River Jordan. The people crossed over, we know this right from the beginning of Joshua, and these are the territories that they have taken now. 
So that's what 16 is showing us. All of this has been taken, but he's not done. Verse 17, you've got them listing the northern and the southern limits of this whole territory. From Mount Halak, which rises from Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. So you've got the two ends of the spectrum as well from this territory that they've taken. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. What we're seeing is this. They have taken complete control of this territory. From the top to the bottom, everything in between is now under the control of Israel, the conquering ones. Joshua has just told us that the whole land has been taken in battle. All of the land that he was supposed to conquer, he did. He conquered and obeyed exactly what he was supposed to do. But that's not the end of the passage, right? Now we get these details. Now we get these other little pieces here for us. And they're not intimate details of battle like we saw at Jericho and I. They're rather like these details about the whole, understanding the whole conquest. And they're very meaningful for us. There are four details that I need to, I'd like to point out for you here as we just walk through the text. First, in verse 18, you'll notice that the conquest took significant time. Let me read it. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. When you and I read the end of Joshua 10, and we just see him clicking off the numbers, like fly right through these cities and kings from Libna to Lachish to Eglon, and we just do it in a matter of seconds. And and we know in our heads that it took more than seconds for them to actually conquer these places. Joshua is making it very clear, though, this was not an overnight victory, as though somehow they just moved right through and it was done. He is showing us that this took some time. And in fact, this took a long time. From the time Joshua and Israel crossed the Jordan, we're talking probably about five to seven years. That's a long time to work through this whole battle. Now, the only reason that we know this, it's not something I'm drawing out of the air. I think it's five to seven years. No, we know this because of chapter 14, where we see the old faithful spy, Caleb, and he gives us a very helpful timeline. Um, We'll get there in a few weeks. But for now, it's enough to show us that God took us back and helped us understand that back in Exodus 23, he made a promise to them that he wouldn't give it to all of them in one year. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment of that promise. He took time to do this over many years. This took endurance and patience and very much committed obedience on the part of Israel. The Lord knew, though, that a blitzkrieg, some sort of action right away to roll over everybody, would leave them not able to fill the land properly. And so he gave it to them over time and gave them success in the right way. So that's the first deal. The conquest took significant time. The second one here, we see that Joshua and Israel did not pull away from their obedient task of making war against these nations. He made war and took them all in battle. That's something we shouldn't just jump across. Look at verse 18 through 20 and notice those things. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This was not a campaign of peace. They are not going about making friends. They're not looking for alliances. Joshua and Israel did not pull away from the difficult task of making war, devoting town after town to destruction, leaving nothing that breathed. You know that this was not a pleasant task. 
Some of the men and women in this room have experienced the difficult nature of engaging in true combat. Some of you understand the weight of a sustained trail of victory, but that leaves death and destruction. This was not an easy task, but it was the task that God had given to them, and it was right. Joshua and Israel did not pull away, but obeyed and made war with the peoples of Canaan until they took the entire territory. But these verses give us a little bit more that we can't ignore, and you know what I'm going here. Third thing is that Yahweh, the divine warrior, who called, he was the one who called the shots in the conquest. Even down to the way that the peoples interacted with Israel, it was Yahweh who relieved Israel of the immense pressure to have to choose between mercy or judgment. He told them this. These verses make it chillingly clear that these nations came to fight against Israel because God hardened their hearts against Israel. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. You'll remember that the Gibeonites were the only ones to receive a covenant of peace. Everyone else responded in defiance and fighting, ready to kill Israel. And verse 20 tells us that it was because God's sovereign hand of judgment had pushed the Canaanites to fight against Israel. It is not for man to make divine decisions, but to obey divine commands. Let me say it again. We are not God. We don't get to call the shots. Whenever we think somehow that we would have decided better than God does, it's idolatry. And what we're worshiping is our own thoughts of how it's supposed to go. And so may I repeat it, it is not for us, for mankind, to make divine decisions, but to obey divine commands. That is what Joshua and the people did here. They obey, and God clears the way so that they might have success in every step that they take. Each detail is carried out by Joshua, while behind the scenes we realize that each detail is orchestrated by the God of Israel, the divine warrior, Yahweh. We may not like this truth. We may not understand it. I will encourage you in one way. We are not God. We do not see his ways. He is above all, and he will judge wickedness. Any affront to his character will be answered with judgment. And so today, we don't judge God. We say, I don't understand, but you are right in all of your ways, and we worship. And then what is on us, then, as creatures, is to obey him as king. And so we see that God hardens them. There's one final detail to note about the conquest. Notice, fourth, that the Lord gives victory over the scariest warriors in the land, the Anakim. If you remember back to Numbers 13, like I referenced before, when Israel sent out the spies into the land, the 12 spies, they came back and 10 of them were freaking out, saying, do you have any idea what this land is like? Let me read their report for you. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it were of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, or Anakites, who come from the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This made Israel despair 
raise a loud cry and decide to rebel against Yahweh's promises and command to move forward into the promised land. This sent them back into the wandering of the wilderness for 40 years and delayed the conquest. And the sons of Anak or the Anakites were the very people that inspired this fear and dread to the point that the people were not willing to trust God. They were more afraid of these people than they were of God. They thought more of their power than the power of Yahweh. And now here we are in Joshua meeting them again, but the tables have turned completely. Look at verse 21 and 22. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Instead of being gripped by fear, this report shows us that the people of Israel heeded the word of the Lord. And they moved forward. They did not fear. Instead, they obeyed the command of the Lord to the point that they devoted these agents of fear to complete destruction. They completely routed them and removed them from their territory. If you don't get this, this is a resounding note of confidence. This is saying the one thing that you were afraid of the most has been destroyed. These Anakites who you thought you could never stand up, you thought you were grasshoppers compared to them, they're dead. They're gone. Their rebellious, their rebellious actions, all those things the Lord has put away and has destroyed them in judgment. He is showing them, instead of being gripped by fear, that they, because of Yahweh's hand, could come overcome these things. A resounding report of confidence. And it brings us right back to chapter 1, where Joshua told us, do not be frightened. Or God told Joshua, excuse me, do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Each of these four details that we've just talked about help us see something. They're markers that help us realize that the writer isn't just talking about Joshua's conquest. He's talking about this larger, bigger, longer conquest that started back in Deuteronomy 2 with Moses. Look at verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now we read this morning from Hebrews. This is not final rest. But it is a cessation from these battles, this conquering. This part of the, of the thing is done. They've done what they're supposed to do here. The task that God has given Joshua to do is complete. He took the whole land and finished the task that Moses began back in Deuteronomy 2. He finishes the battles and brought Israel to a place where they are ready to hand it over to the possessions of the tribes. Now it is each tribe to go in and conquer that area and dispossess all the rest of the peoples that are there. It's important that we note here, because you're going to ask these questions when you read the rest of Joshua, and when you read Judges especially. It's important for us to note that this did not mean that there were zero Canaanites left in the land. Remember what he's doing. They are not occupying yet at this time. They are crushing the backbone of power throughout this place. So there is no question who's in charge of Canaan. Anyone that they came across, they destroyed. Besides the Gibeonites, anyone else that they were able to get their hands on, they slew. And this is exactly what we see him coming to and making a point here to remember that they fully completed the job that Yahweh had given them to do. But as for Joshua's task, again, like I said, it was properly done and he had obeyed God completely. 
He had finished the task that Moses began, and now they stood in Canaan with the first of many promises fulfilled. If you followed along, today I've tried really hard to help us see the connection between Joshua and Moses, to see that this is not Joshua's deal, and it's not really even Moses' deal. This is the one that was given to Israel by God for them to do. In case we have a hard time seeing that, though, in case Moses' conquest still seems so far away from the present text, I'd encourage you to look at chapter 12 for a moment, just by a glance. If you have the ESV Bible in front of you, or actually probably any translation, you're going to see title headings, right? At the beginning of chapter 12, from 1 through 6, yours probably says something like this. Kings defeated by who? By Moses. Then look at 7 through 24, entitled Kings defeated by? A lot quieter that time. Uh, Kings defeated by Joshua. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through this whole section, but I want you to note, if you glance over 7 through 24, you're going to recognize a lot of these areas and a lot of the people there because we've already seen them in Joshua. But if you look at 1 through 7, those are the ancient ones that Moses had actually gone to and he had, he had warred against. But the first six verses are actually part of the same thing. They're not a separate thing completely. That's why Joshua brings them together here. This excursus is really important, showing that God's original plan was coming to fruition and that all that Moses and Joshua had done together was now complete in the conquest. Now, you, might, you and I might think that chapter 12 is very dull reading, and it is in some ways. It's kind of boring. But that does not mean that it's not important. Uh, how many of you remember... 1991 to 1998 Chicago Bulls. And we're talking about, if you remember this, you're talking about Jordan, talking about Pippen, we're talking about this dynasty that in eight years took six rings. I mean, they were impressive. Or maybe for the, those football fans, you probably know the name, the New England Patriots. Yeah, I know, I know. Brady, Gronk, all, and company, what they've done in the last 18 years has been, I would say, at least successful, if not potentially a dynasty as well. Any of these, though, these current champions or the older champions, are going to have something in common. They did not just have one or two significant wins. They did not win all the glory out of one big battlefront. It went week of practice after week of practice, game after game after game, after preseason, after post, all together and building this big record that they are showing for themselves to be a, in a position of dominance. One that actually shows proof that they were legit, that they're not just a one-hit wonder, but rather that they were able to sustain victory over and over again. I'm pretty sure that if you talk to Jordan or Brady, they hold their winnings in pretty high regard. They can remember a lot of the details of those battles fought, both on the court and off the court. They're important. It's not okay for those wins to be forgotten. Those records are important. They need to be written down and memorialized and need to be remembered and touted and even bragged on. These wins mean something to the winners. They also mean something to the losers, though. These victories stand as proof that they truly have something to brag about. This is the record that they all agree upon. This actually happened this way. They stand to show the glory of the victor, that they deserve the glory and the laud and the praise, that they did the right things and they actually had victory. In Joshua 12, we see the victor 
showing us a very impressive record. All wins, no losses. No defeat. Yes, we talk about Aiken, I understand, but you remember what happens right after Aiken? No defeat. <laughs> we have a win. Joshua 12 belongs then right here. After he's finished this and showing us he's closing the book on the conquest, he is going to help us see, you want to see the record? I'll give you the Moses record all the way through to Joshua, all the way through the end. There it is. This passage is about the divine warrior and that he does not lose. Again, we've said it before, but when the divine warrior is on this team, they will win. He always does. So the question we have then, what do we do with this passage? I mean, it's an impressive statement of history that this is what happened in Israel. Should we just, I mean, like, what do we in 2019 do with this though? Like, are we supposed to stand back in awe and remember? That, that's good, yeah. I, I would think that's a good thing, in awe and praise and worship. Or maybe we are to learn that God is in complete control over every detail. Yeah, I think that's good as well. Maybe it's to remember that God himself will overcome the greatest agents of our fears and worries and the things that keep us up at night. I think that's also a very good application for us. There's so many really good applications for this text, but I, I just want to drive one home. It's a little bit like, kind of forgotten. It's been said that a pastor's job isn't, prepare, isn't to prepare you for the next week, but for eternity. I think that's right. I certainly want to prepare you for the next week. But it's far more important, and I think I can get a lot more done next week if we aim at eternity, showing that this is far more important to look at the long picture. I want to prepare you, but I think one of the ways to do that is to remind you that we have to be ready together to play the long game. The battle is not won this week alone. There will be another one next week, or the next day, or the next minute and you're going to feel like a failure, and then you're going to feel like you won, and then you failed again, and it's going to continue and continue. You may be dealing with fear, or maybe you're dealing with unbelief, or perhaps weakness and suffering. But in all of these things, can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to endure? Can I encourage you to obey? That all is not lost in the skirmishes? That our God will always win? Despite the valley that you are in and how dark it possibly is, do not forget he is the God of all victory and he will not lose. We have this little spot here that reminds us that Joshua fought this for a long time. We remember that life is really not a sprint, but rather a marathon. Some longer than others, but each one has been given a specific course of obedience to this covenant-keeping God who has called you to himself. Some of you may just simply wrestle day after day after day with, with, with doubt, with fear, with hardness, or this fight against sin, with assurance of your own salvation, with struggle with your spouse, with the suffering that comes from being in this lost and broken world. I don't know exactly what each of yours is, but I do know this. The answer is always the same you must rely and trust this Yahweh, the one who will not be beat. He will win. He will not fail. We come here to the end of the conquest in chapter 12. It's been going on since Deuteronomy 2. And we see that God graciously gives victory in the long run. 
Brothers and sisters, may we learn the lessons of Joshua. Yes, step by step by step that we've learned all the way through and continue to apply those things. Leaning on his faithfulness, trusting his character, and obeying, though, until the day that he brings the end of the fight. I don't know when that will be, but I can tell you he will be faithful. So brothers and sisters, obey, repent, go back again and pound against the scriptures that you would know this God. Pray to him, love him, ask him to help you. Even those simple actions saying, I don't know what to do, Lord, but I need your help. In faith, he will hear. In faith, he loves you. By your faith, trusting him, he is working on your behalf, whether you can see it or not. He's the God who will be faithful. I promise you that he has, he has fulfilled all of his promises and that he will not let any of them go by without giving them true fulfillment. He promises it today. He promises that it will come true in the future. And he has given us proof over and over again of his faithfulness. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray for grace. We ask that you would overcome all of these different things, whether it's our fears, our doubts, our sin that we meddle in. Lord, would you crush these things so that we might properly love and trust you. Would you give peace to the weary soul today, the one that hurts for suffering? Would you be with the sister or brother who fights against sin and feels like this ever end? Would you remind them that you are true and faithful and that none of your promises will fail? God, we need your grace and mercy. So please, Lord, give us grace today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.